Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everyone, it's Pacific. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision could also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to choice.crd.co. Again, that's choice.crd.co. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. And now, this week's episode. Australia has garnered a reputation over the years as home to some of the deadliest animals in the world. If you swim in the ocean, you might encounter a golf ball-sized blue ring octopus with a venomous bite, or the severe sting of the box jellyfish, whose tentacles can stretch to over three painful meters. On the shore, picking up the wrong beautiful shell might result in a prick from the harpoon-like tooth of the cone snail. Further inland, stay out of the way of the cassowary, a massive, incredibly territorial bird with a dagger-like claw made for slicing. There are snakes and spiders ready to skitter and slither underfoot with varying levels of danger in their bites. But none of these creatures are as infamous as the largest reptile in the world by mass, the toothy, leathery, highly aggressive saltwater crocodile. These behemoths don't attack humans indiscriminately, but if a person happens to wander in the wrong body of water at just the wrong time, then the jaws of death might be waiting there to snatch them up. In 2007, writer-director Andrew Trockey released a killer crocodile film called Black Water, in which a pregnant woman, her husband, and her sister are terrorized by a vicious saltwater crocodile in the mangrove swamps of northern Australia. Trockey drew a lot of attention for using real crocodiles in the film rather than cutting corners with digital effects. There were, of course, a lot of challenges that came with this creative choice. One of the crocodiles named Stumpy ate a camera during the course of production. Another crocodile, this one 12 feet long, chased the director on land until the animal wranglers thankfully caught him. But the crocodiles weren't the only real-life element in black water. The film's story was based on a true story of death and survival in Australia, of three young men who ventured into the wilderness one December day, not knowing that just beneath the surface of the dark water was a beast ready for a hunt, and a night of primal terror that they would never forget. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. From November to April, Australia is engulfed in the rainstorms and suffocating humidity that characterize its wet season. Rivers rise to flood their banks, the ground softens and runs with red mud, and animals that normally stay in the deepest parts of the water advance a lot closer to what was once the shore. It was under these conditions, on December 21, 2003, that three friends met up to race their quad bikes. The trio is made up of Brett Mann, 22, 
Ashley McGow, 19, and Sean Blowers, also 19, and they drove past the Tumbling Waters Holiday Park with its rows of caravans and lush tropical gardens, tires kicking up dust as they veered between blue gum, eucalyptus, and mangrove trees towards the wide stretches of salt flats perfect for biking. They had met at the spot plenty of times before to speed through the dirt, splashing each other with mud and enjoying the fresh air on their faces and each other's company. Sean had been coming to this particular stretch of salt plain since he was five years old, never facing anything more perilous than a scraped knee. For the first few hours, the day seemed like any other. They raced, they laughed, and they made a muddy mess of their bikes and clothes alike. After they had sufficiently exhausted themselves, the boys decided to take a break and rinse off in the nearby river. The water was noticeably high, but there was nothing alarming about that. It was the wet season, after all. They didn't give it a second thought until they advanced further into the water. Sean and Ashley hung back while Brett went on ahead of them. Then, in the blink of an eye, Brett went from standing up and sloshing through the water to being knocked down into the river with the current rapidly carrying him away. Sean and Ashley couldn't tell what exactly had happened to him if he had slipped on a rock or simply been unable to resist the sudden strength of the tide, but their protective instincts took over and they rushed into danger after their friend. They splashed through the water for 300 meters, hearts pounding and muscles straining to remain upright against the force of the river pulling them along, until they finally caught up to Brett. The two positioned themselves in front of their friend, blocking him from being swept away any further, and it helped him regain his footing. Brett was a bit shaken up, but otherwise completely unharmed. It was a nasty surprise realizing that the current was much stronger than they had anticipated. But, now that they knew what to expect, it was much easier to navigate. Though they were able to remain upright, they had to battle the current every step of the way as long as they were in the water. If they didn't want to get washed downriver into truly unfamiliar territory, they would have to get back on dry land as soon as possible. About a kilometer down the river, the trio was growing steadily more and more exhausted. They had no choice but to keep moving, though, and focused all their energy on the task at hand. Silence fell between the group the jokes and boisterous laughter of the afternoon forgotten, replaced with grunts of effort and the ceaseless sounds of rushing water. That is, until Ashley's panic-strained voice broke through the noise and he shouted the words that no Australian ever wants to hear. Croc! Croc! He continued, desperately, I'm not joking, there's a fucking croc! Head for a tree, get out of the water! Sean's animal instincts kicked in, and without thinking, he swam to a nearby tree. He grabbed hold of a branch and pulled himself up to the safety of the first fork in the branches. Ashley was close behind him and he helped hoist his friend up into the same tree. They reached back for Brett, but he wasn't there. Sean's eyes scanned the water looking for any signs of his friend thrashing against the current, listening for his voice calling for help, but there was nothing. Without so much as a yelp or a splash, Brett had disappeared. But then, only minutes later, something else broke the surface of the water. An enormous black crocodile popped up out of the river just a few meters away, clutching something in its jaws. It was a human figure, and the two in the tree felt their stomachs drop in horror at the sight of the familiar yellow-striped riding gear that had belonged to their friend. The crocodile had a limp brett in its teeth, biting down on his left shoulder. It looked up at Sean and Ashley for a moment, black eyes glittering with hunger, before it vanished back into the water below, taking Brett with it. The two boys barely had time to mourn the loss of their friend before the crocodile returned, circling beneath their unsteady perch in the tree. Its thick tail sliced through the water, its nostrils flared, 
and its unblinking gaze watched them, waiting for them to slip and fall into its domain. There was nowhere to go, nothing to do but cling to the tree, keeping as steady as possible as they waited and hoped that the crocodile would eventually grow tired of stalking them and move on to easier prey. In the meantime, though, the temperature was dropping, making them shiver through their wet clothes, and it was getting dark. As the daylight dwindled, the weather worsened. Wind whipped against the tree, rustling its branches menacingly as the wood creaked back and forth. Rain poured down on the boys, dampening them every time they started to dry off. They were cold, frightened, and with no light sources around except for the little bit of sun left. Soon it would be too dark to see if the crocodile was still down there. Just as the sun dipped out of sight, Sean decided to climb up higher in the tree to put more distance between him and the crocodile. But the bark of the tree was slick with rain, and the wind refused to let up. He couldn't get a steady grip on the upper branches, and when he tried to find his footing, he slipped and tumbled down into the water with a splash. His heart leapt into his throat and adrenaline spiked in his veins as his limbs violently grasped for something, anything, to pull him back out. This couldn't be it. He couldn't let the crocodile have him. A combination of pure terror and luck got Sean back up in the tree, where Ashley was waiting for him, paralyzed with dread. The two promised to not move again until it was safe for them to climb down. Whatever happened, they had to stay in the tree. They couldn't shift, couldn't try to get higher, and they definitely couldn't fall asleep. If they did, they might slide off of their fork in the tree and into the crocodile's mouth. Instead, they sat huddled close together for warmth, Sean keeping a hand on Ashley's foot so he could track his friend's whereabouts in the pitch-black night. They didn't speak much. There wasn't anything they could think of to say, but they checked in every few minutes just to be certain the other hadn't fallen asleep in the quiet. There, they clung to the tree and to each other, praying the rain wouldn't raise the floodwaters high enough for the crocodile to reach them. Until the sun rose again, they wouldn't be able to tell how much space there was between Meanwhile, the boys' friends and family were growing concerned. They had originally planned to be back home by 7.30 p.m., and when they didn't make it back, their friends decided to look for them. They found the car abandoned and the trailer with no bikes inside. Fearing the worst, they called the authorities. And that morning at 7 a.m., the Marine and Fisheries Enforcement Section and the Territory Response Section both sent search parties out to look for the missing three. Finally, after so many unbearably tense hours, help was on the way. The search parties assumed the boys had faced complications from the bad weather. Perhaps the mud or the floodwaters had trapped them out in the bush, or they'd gotten lost out there. Whatever the problem was, it would be a simple fix, they thought. They had no idea just how much worse things really were. With rising floodwaters and a man-eating crocodile in the mix, the rescue effort was going to be anything but simple. Up next, we learn about what happened when help finally came to rescue the two survivors after the scariest 22 hours of their lives. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. 
Priceline. And now, back to our show. At 10 a.m., Ashley and Sean finally heard the sound of a voice that was not one of theirs. It belonged to a family friend, Wayne Mitchell, who had joined the search party and was calling out their names through the torrential downpour. Sean couldn't see him or any of the officers looking for them, but he recognized the voice and promptly yelled back. He told the search party where they were, what had happened to them, and warned them to not go into the water in an attempt to save them. It wasn't safe. He could still see the crocodile lying in wait below. The rescuers could not see the boys from their position on dry land, but Sean's hurried explanation painted a pretty clear picture, and the severity of their situation was obvious. These boys needed to be rescued as soon as possible or the unthinkable might happen. But what could they do? The river had swelled from ten meters wide to five kilometers, and there was no way the boys could swim across it, even if there wasn't a crocodile in the water. With the raging storm and the risk of hypothermia, trying to get a boat out to them would cost precious time they couldn't afford to spare. They would need to get an emergency helicopter to fly through the rain and lift Sean and Ashley out. Captain Wayne Silby, accompanied by several officers and a paramedic, came to a hover above the tree, preparing to pick up the boys. The downdraft coming from the chopper's rotor blade shook the flimsy, dead wood of the tree, and the highest branch broke loose with a snap and fell into the water. If they got any closer, the helicopter might break the tree into pieces and send the boys careening to their deaths. The rescue team would have to think fast and find another solution before it was too late. The last remaining option was risky, but time was running out and the team couldn't afford to think too hard about the danger of what they were about to do. Two officers took the marine life raft from the helicopter and were lowered onto a tiny island in the middle of the river to blow it up. As the two men prepared the raft, one of them let out a harsh, humorless laugh. There were no oars to propel the raft, only a pair of flippers they would have to use as a desperate replacement. Finally, the flimsy raft was ready and the two men began paddling as hard as they could with their makeshift oars, fighting against the river's current. Up above, the helicopter's pilot could see the officer struggling and angled the chopper so that its downdraft would help propel the raft along. And so, they made their way down the river towards Sean and Ashley and their tree, grabbing at branches and plants as they went in order to keep the raft from flipping over. They knew that the raft could capsize at any moment and that the crocodile could decide to come after them next. When they reached the boys, they gave them these instructions. Get your balance, then jump out of the tree and into the raft. Sean and Ashley were terrified to let go of the only safe refuge they had known for hours. But seeing that there was no other way out, they took a leap of faith into the flimsy rubber boat and the four began to paddle back towards the little island. Once they were all safely back on dry land, the helicopter was able to lift them out and carry them to the hospital. Physically, Sean and Ashley were in surprisingly good shape. Emotionally, however, they were wrecked. They had lost their friend, and spent 22 hours cowering in a tree as the creature that killed him stalked them all night. Jeff and Christine Mann, Brett's parents, were heartbroken. It was a senseless tragedy. Jeff said there was no blame, no reason, no excuse. It was just one of those things. Wrong day, wrong time. These days, the survivors live quiet lives in the same community, doing their best to rebuild. However, they still carry that day with them, and every year they join Brett's family at the spot where he died to honor his memory. The tragic loss of Brett Mann is far from the only crocodile attack that Australia has seen in recent years. Just last year, a 60-year-old man was attacked on a riverbank in Cape York Peninsula. He was fishing along the riverbank when a crocodile suddenly lunged at him, biting down on his boots and pulling him into the water. 
He grabbed onto a nearby tree in an attempt to stay out of the water, but the crocodile was over 13 feet long and he didn't stand a chance against it in a tug of war. Crocodiles pull their prey underwater as part of the hunt, so the man knew that if the beast got him underwater, then it would be over. As the crocodile pulled him into the river, the man grabbed a hold of the knife in his belt and stabbed the crocodile in the head over and over again, until it released its grip on his leg. He was hospitalized soon after and was incredibly lucky to escape with his life. Other crocodile attacks do not end so well for the victim. In 2014, in Kakadu National Park, southeast of Darwin, a group of 12-year-old boys was attacked during a Sunday afternoon swim. First, the crocodile clamped its jaws down on a boy's arm, but when the boy fought back, sustaining deep wounds on both arms in the process, the crocodile turned away from him and grabbed a different boy before pulling him into the water and out of sight. In 2006, an eight-year-old girl was snatched from the bank of the Blythe River in the Northern Territory. She went into the river's edge to collect water and was promptly pulled in. In October of last year, another child was eaten by a crocodile, this time while bathing in a river on Buru Island in Indonesia. This attack was especially devastating as it happened while her friends watched. The same story has unfolded again and again too many times to list. Crocodiles are opportunistic predators, and if a human, especially a small one, gets close enough, they will seize the opportunity. Saltwater crocodiles kill roughly one person per year in Australia, and can grow to the absolutely staggering length of 17 feet and weigh over 1,000 pounds. An attack from a crocodile is 100 times more likely to result in death than a shark attack. So, what should you do if you ever find yourself in an encounter with an aggressive crocodile? While some potential victims have had success with confronting crocodiles, making noise to scare them away, attempting to do so is incredibly risky. The best strategy, if you notice a crocodile in the wild, is to slowly back away and make no sudden movements such as splashing in the water. If it spots you and attempts to pursue, then you should run away in a straight line. Many well-intentioned people repeat the myth about running away from a crocodile in a zigzag pattern in order to exhaust and confuse it. This is not true, and will only give the animal more time to catch up to you. Your best bet is to run straight forward and don't look back. If you can't run away fast enough and the crocodile grabs onto one of your limbs, gouge at its sensitive eyes until it lets go. If that doesn't work, and the crocodile pulls you into the ominously named death roll, a move intended to drown its intended prey, do not stop fighting. You may be able to break free and make it to safety. If all else fails, you can try the 11th hour method used by Rudy Francis, who survived a crocodile attack in 2017 by having his co-workers pull him to safety and allowing the crocodile to tear his right leg clean off at the knee. Though he lost a limb, he lived to see another day. When asked for advice on safety encountering crocodiles, Blackwater director Andrew Trocky simply said, don't. And it's true. The best way to survive a crocodile attack is to avoid encountering crocodiles in the first place. Stay out of their habitats. Look out for potential threats posed by rising floodwaters. And if you see a scaly snout and glassy eyes poking out of the water up ahead, run fast and far in the opposite direction. This isn't to imply that crocodiles are inherently malicious or evil in any way. There's no reason to pass a moral judgment on the animal kingdom. Nature doesn't care about human concepts like cruelty or morality. Crocodiles don't have it out for humans any more than a spider bears ill will towards a fly that gets caught in its web. And in many ways, that indifference is much scarier than deliberate malevolence could ever be. So many horror films focus on supernatural forces, on cursed dolls, vengeful spirits, 
evil demons that cross over from another world and terrorize the living. But sometimes, we don't have to look that far, don't have to expand our imaginations to consider that which we can never truly comprehend. Sometimes the horror doesn't lurk in the corner of our eye, or just beyond the veil, but right in front of us, peering out of the murky river water with watchful eyes and a ravenous appetite. As humans, we like to try and forget that we're animals, to pretend that our towering cities and technological advances make us somehow above the natural world in all of the raw, visceral danger that it represents. But we can't invert our ways off of the food chain, and like it or not, there are apex predators that see us for what we really are when modern conveniences fail and the lights go out. We don't have to dream up the things that go bump in the night. They're already there. Tonight's episode was written by Addison Peacock. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was the incredible Danny Sweet, and I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. <laughs>